Hey, FAC, Pastor Mike here. I want to wish you a happy Easter. And although I am so sad that we cannot be together in person today, I am confident that we are together in spirit. Uh, but despite the circumstances, we are still going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop that. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. Today, we're going to take a close look from verse 57 all the way to verse 15 in uh, chapter 28. Uh, To start, I'm just going to read those first few verses, that first section from verse 57 to 61. But keep your Bibles open to that passage because we're going to revisit it and we're going to walk through this story together over the course of the next several minutes. Now, let me read that first section for you and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Uh, Verse 57. It says this, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And now, Father, as the old prayer says, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. Through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. This past week, I received a promotional email from the New York Times encouraging me to subscribe to their online news source for only $2 a week. I'm not sure how I got on their email list, but I did think it was very interesting how they communicated the offer to me. The subject line of the email read, Commit to uncovering the truth. Subscribe today. And then the body of the email uh, went on to say that uncovering the facts takes courage independence, and you. The independent journalists at the Times spend years researching, investigating, and reporting stories that demand the world's attention. Your support can help them break the next big story. Needless to say, I didn't subscribe. However, the promotional uh, email did make me feel that I could be a part of something that I could play a part in breaking that next big news story that demands the world's attention. Even the subject line that requests me to commit to uncovering the truth suggests that uh, it takes effort and hard work to determine in our world which events are true and which events are fake, which details are factual and which details are a fabrication. I would agree that it takes time and energy and thought to dissect a story and parse out which details are accurate and which are embellishments. Uh, However, um, despite the effort, we must give such groundbreaking stories our attention. The worst thing that we could do is to submit to our ignorance and not give a story any consideration that it calls for. 
Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus, which is just a fancy way of saying that he was a follower of Jesus, wrote this story that we just read moments ago. In Matthew's writing, we're going to come to find that he claims that Jesus was crucified, put to death, that he was buried, but that he actually rose from the grave. He's not the only source that claims this. He is just the one that we're going to look at today, though. This is a significant, groundbreaking story. This is the kind of story that if we were in Matthew's day, the New York Times would want to cover. They would research and investigate and report this story that demands the world's attention. They would commit to uncovering the truth, and they would want you to commit to uncovering the truth. Unfortunately, many people don't commit to this, and they simply write off Jesus' resurrection as some kind of hoax without any kind of consideration, without taking more than a few minutes to consider the claims. They are unwilling to research and investigate, and they are unwilling to commit to uncovering the truth. Now, if you're sitting at home watching this right now, and you fall into that camp that believes that Jesus' resurrection is merely a fairy tale, I want to ask you an honest question. How many hours, how much time have you poured into researching this claim that Jesus rose from the grave to ensure that you are right to believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead? Do you even care? Because this kind of claim, this kind of story, as the New York Times puts it, demands our attention and consideration. Because if it's true, it will change your entire life, whether you want it to or not. This story, if it is true, will have a personal effect on you. And so, I would strongly encourage you and urge you to take the time and effort to consider such claims that Jesus is indeed alive. And this passage that we're going to work through today is a great place to start. We'll actually find in the passage that we're studying together that from the very beginning, there were attempts to cover the truth of Jesus' resurrection. There was a cover-up story from the beginning, and Matthew wants to set the record straight. As an eyewitness to Jesus' life, he is committing himself to uncovering the truth. And so we begin briefly in verses 57 through 61, which I read earlier. This recounts Jesus' burial. Now, what we read describes a very typical Jewish burial. Um, it's, a, it's a very typical way that somebody would be buried. Most burial sites would be private tombs that families would own, and richer families would be able to buy big enough tombs that would fit their entire family after they had passed away. These tombs were essentially caves that would be dug out from the face of a mountain or a hill, or they would be abandoned quarries. And 
after bodies were placed in the tomb, they would often place a very large three or four foot stone uh, right in front of the entrance. And they would actually kind of dig out a groove in front of the entrance so that when the stone uh, was set there, it would, it would stay there. It was very difficult to, to move. You would imagine how cumbersome it would be to move this stone once it's set in place. It would be impossible to move this stone without at least several grown men exerting all of their strength to move it. It's not something that one guy could move on his own. These stones were placed there to prevent anyone or anything getting in. They were placed there specifically so that wild animals couldn't get in and feed on the carcass. And so when Jesus is placed in the tomb, and we read in verse 60 that the great stone was rolled to the entrance of the tomb, we know that this gravesite is secure. Nothing is getting into this tomb that now holds the body of Jesus without some sort of great effort. Up until this point, as I mentioned, this is a normal Jewish burial practice. And as the tomb is shut... Those who have opposed Jesus in his message rejoice. They rejoice that this is now a closed chapter. It's done and over. As the tomb is closed, the door closes on this Jesus movement. The Jesus movement has died and has been buried with the man himself. But then we find the next day, that some religious leaders and the chief priests who executed Jesus are not quite satisfied. Paranoia sets in, and they determine that they need to take some additional steps of uh, precaution. And so take a look at me with, uh, uh, with what happens in verses 62 through 66. This is what Matthew writes. It says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse Then the first, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. In this time period, the Roman Empire ruled a good portion of the known world. And Pontius Pilate, who's referred here in this passage, was the Roman governor of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located. And so the Jewish leaders were under his authority and would pretty much have to go to Pilate to seek his approval and permission on most of their activity. And so the day after Jesus is crucified, the religious leaders go to Pilate and try to sell him on the need to secure Jesus' tomb. They say, hey, Pilate, this, this guy, Jesus, he claimed, we remember that he claimed that after three days he would rise from the dead. And so we need to do whatever we can to ensure that his disciples can't steal the body and fabricate this elaborate hoax that he's actually alive. What the religious leaders are doing is playing to Pilate's situation. 
You see, Pilate had somewhat of an estranged relationship with the Jewish people that he governed. He wasn't Jewish himself, so he would often be in a tough position of trying to keep the peace with the Jewish people, but while also satisfying Roman rule. If you recall, during Jesus' trial, Pilate is uh, talking with Jesus, and he actually felt that Jesus was, was not guilty of the charges, that Jesus was an innocent man. But in order to uh, appease the Jewish people and keep the peace, Pilate turns Jesus over to them to be crucified. He was trying to avoid a riot from the people. And so you get the feeling that Pilate is just kind of annoyed and irritated with the whole situation. And so in this passage, it's almost as if the Jesus are telling Pilate, hey, Pilate, if you were irritated with uh, what this Jesus fellow has already stirred up, think about how much worse it will get if his followers begin claiming that he's risen from the dead, that will be worse than what you were dealing with before. You see, these leaders understand the ramifications of a resurrected Jesus. They understand the, the ramifications of even a perceived resurrected Jesus. So in order to stop that from happening, to stop even just the thought of it, they go to Pilate, they play into some of his vulnerabilities and they ask him if they can secure the tomb more effectively. And of course, Pilate complies and he allows them to go, what the text says, to make the tomb as secure as they could, to, to make it as secure as possible. And they do this in two ways. The first thing that they do is they set a guard over the tomb. Now, there's some ambiguity here. Um, there's a question as to whether these were Roman guards or merely just Jewish temple guards. From what I can tell, the context seems to lean towards the fact that these were Roman guards. And for whatever reason, we typically think in our time that, that there was only a few guards present. But there's a great possibility that an entire unit was dispatched and placed at the tomb. If this was the case, there probably would have been 16 Roman guards who were elite and trained to execute. These guys killed for a living, and they served under a very strict regime. And so at the gravesite, you would have 16 killing machines in these Roman guards, and each guard would be responsible only for six square feet of space. They weren't allowed to sit or lean on anything uh, while they were on duty, and if any one of them failed their post, all 16 would suffer the, suffer the consequences. All 16 would be punished and very likely executed. And so there would be no bombarding or taking them by surprise. They were prepared and ready as the guard was set. And if that weren't enough to secure the, the tomb, they also seal the stone. Now, don't think of this as if they, they rolled the stone in front of the tomb because we actually read that that's already happened. The stone is already in front of the tomb. No, when you read that they sealed the stone... Think more along the lines of how governments will stamp an official document with a seal which authenticates the document. 
This seal that the text is referring to would be a soft and moldable substance like a lump of clay. And what they did was imprint the Roman seal, the imperial seal on it, as if to say that this tomb is occupied and this tomb is closed and to remain closed by the authority of the Roman Empire. And if it is opened in an unauthorized fashion by anybody then the people who opened it would have to answer to Rome. And not only that, they would use this seal as an official security device of sorts. Uh, They would take one end of the rope and they would place it uh, under the lump of clay. And that lump of clay would be sealed to, to the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. And then they would take the other end of the rope and they would take another lump of clay and they would seal that end of the rope to the actual tomb itself. This reminds me of an old youth ministry tactic that I would use when I was a youth pastor. Uh, over the years, we would go on trips that required us to stay at hotels And because we were in a public place, I took the responsibility upon myself to ensure that our youth, our students, weren't a public menace to everyone else in the middle of the night. And so I would tell our students that they weren't allowed to leave their hotel room after lights out. Now, of course, as the youth pastor, I never trusted any of them, uh, but I couldn't lock them in their rooms. That's illegal. I know because I checked. Uh, So instead... I picked up a trick from old youth pastors of days gone by. The students knew that I did this, but each night after I told them that it was lights out, I would close the door and I would take a strip of scotch tape and I would put one part of the scotch tape over the door frame and I would uh, take the other end of the scotch tape and I would put it on the door. Uh, So if any of the students left the room in the middle of the night, I would know because they had no way of reattaching the seal that I put in place. What the religious leaders do when they seal the stone is create a method to validate that no one has tampered with this tomb. If anyone claimed that Jesus has risen from the dead, they would simply point to the seal and prove that no one has gone in And no one has come out. Between the guards and the seal, they are stockpiling undisputable proof that under no circumstances did anything happen to this dead body. They wanted to keep a dead man dead, even if only in your imagination. They want Jesus to stay buried, and they want the whole Jesus movement to stay buried with him. And as long as they can keep that body in the tomb and are able to prove it, the movement will die. The religious leaders go to extreme lengths to prevent a hoax about Jesus' resurrection. But sure enough, Sunday morning comes. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. We read that as a couple of women are going to the tomb, a a giant earthquake hits, and a great angel of the Lord comes and rolls back this stone. Now remember that this stone was not easily moved. This is a powerful demonstration of the supernatural strength of this angel. And even his appearance conveys this idea of power. It says that his appearance was like lightning. This past week, we had a giant thunderstorm, and for a minute there, it seemed like lightning was just crashing down every other second, and with each crash of lightning, our whole house would shake. If I was outside in the midst of the lightning during that storm, I would have, been, uh, I would have had a significant amount of fear, and we see that this is exactly what happens and exactly the reaction of the Roman guards. Once again, these guys are professionally trained for combat. They are familiar with fearful situations. Yet in this moment, they are so gripped with terror that they actually lose consciousness. The text says that they were like dead men, and there's a hint of irony here, that they are supposed to be guarding a dead man, yet Matthew writes that they become like dead men. And after the guards swoon, the angels turn, the angel turns his attention to the women and says, do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And it's funny because he never says that to the guards, because the guards had every reason to be afraid. No, he tells the women, you don't need to be afraid because I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. I know your motives and you have nothing to worry about. But I should tell you that what you're looking for isn't here because the tomb is a place for dead people and your crucified Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive just as he said he would be. And I love that the angel includes this at the end of his statement, that he has risen just as he said. The angel is is saying uh, that this was all part of the plan. You may have felt defeat when Jesus was crucified. You may have felt the sting of death when Jesus was crucified. In the midst of loneliness and darkness, it may have felt to you that the plan, that this movement was unraveling between your fingers as they put Jesus on the cross. But it never was unraveling. It was never spiraling out of control. No, this was all according to his word. This was all predicted. This was all part of the plan. 
And then the angel draws the attention to the empty tomb. He says, come and see for yourself. Come and see for yourself that the tomb is empty. Observe with your own eyes that he's not here. You'll notice that the stone was uh, rolled away, but the tomb was already empty. It's very clear that when the tomb was opened, Jesus was already gone. He had already left. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out, but rather it was rolled away so that we could see in, so that we could have proof and evidence that he was indeed alive. And if the empty tomb isn't enough proof for you in this story, in verse 9, Jesus appears to them in the flesh. We read that they worshipped him and they took hold of his feet. Matthew is very clear that this wasn't merely a vision. No, Jesus is interacting with them. And they are holding his feet. There is physical touch. He is there in the flesh. And from these 10 short verses, this is the message that Matthew wants to communicate, is that Jesus rose from the grave in the flesh, and it's all observable. These are objective, black and white statements. They are not opinions. They are eyewitness accounts of real events with real people. You'll see Matthew use that word behold three times in these verses. That word behold means to observe, to to see for yourself. This is an event that you can set your eyes on. It's not a mental framework, right? It's not even an opinion about something. No, this is something that is observable. In a world that struggles with what's real and what's not, what's true and what isn't, we need to be able to see because the lines are blurred between fact and fiction. Yet the whole resurrection story and the whole foundation of the Christian faith is based on observable facts based on what we can see with our own two eyes, that the tomb is empty. And this case gets even stronger when you consider the response of the guards and the religious leaders to this event. We find that in verses 11 through 15. Take a look at it while I read. It says this, while they were going... It's referring to the women while they were going. Behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In this passage, we see two different groups rushing away from the temple or from the tomb with a message to deliver with the same story that the tomb is empty. The the women have a message of hope and of victory. 
for the disciples, but the guards have one of despair and defeat. But that message that they carry is the same, that the tomb is empty. I'll buy it, they will respond much differently. How do the religious leaders respond to the empty tomb? They develop a story. The guards fell asleep and the disciples stole the body away while they were sleeping. And then they pay the guards off and propagate this hoax. It's fascinating to me that at the beginning of this passage, that they were trying to avoid the disciples developing a hoax that Jesus was alive. They went to great lengths, uh, like we looked at, to to ensure that a hoax could uh, even be developed, right? Yet uh, here they are trying to explain away a truth that they don't want to believe. And this story that they develop has more holes in it than a block of Swiss cheese. It is unequivocally the worst cover-up in all human history. I read this story and I, and I say, really? Really? This is the best argument that you have? This is the best explanation that you have for an empty tomb? You mean to tell me that these highly trained soldiers, these highly disciplined soldiers were duped by a couple of ordinary fishermen? right? Uh, Fishermen who as disciples were nowhere to be found when Jesus was arrested and crucified. These disciples, these followers were terrified and abandoned Jesus when he was arrested out of fear. And you mean to tell me that all of a sudden, just like that, they've had a sudden surge of courage and are willing to try and thwart many Roman soldiers? If if the disciples didn't protect Jesus when he was alive, certainly they wouldn't have risked their lives to steal his body after he was dead. And not only that, but all the Roman soldiers were sleeping. It, It was a capital offense for Roman soldiers to sleep on the job. And if one of them slept, all of them were punished. And so all of them just haphazardly fall asleep. And wouldn't even just one of them wake up if the disciples tried to roll that heavy stone away? I mean, this was a heavy stone. This would have made a lot of noise. Under such context, there is no way that the disciples could have stolen that body. It's more logical to believe in a supernatural resurrection than to believe in this story that the religious leaders concoct. But they have to say something, right? Because the seal is broken. The stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty and there's no body to be seen. How do you explain that? Where's the body? You see, their explanation only serves as a confirmation because they have to provide some kind of an answer for an empty tomb as the disciples would be proclaiming a resurrected Jesus throughout Jerusalem, all the leaders would have to do to put an end to this is to point people back to the tomb and say, look, the body is still there. The stone is still in place and the seal is still intact. All they need to do was provide a body. Where's the body? 
There is no body because that body is now out and about in the streets interacting with people. If this was a court of law and the question at hand was, did Jesus rise from the dead? Exhibit A in the trial would be the body. But they don't have the body and they have no proof. By coming up with this pathetic story, even the religious leaders who put Jesus in the ground are acknowledging and affirming that the tomb is empty and they don't have the body. The religious leaders make every attempt to keep Jesus locked in, to keep him from their perspective in his place. They're saying, we don't want him out in the open like this. We don't even want the idea of him being out in the open like this. He's dead and he's going to stay dead. That's not much different than today, is it? When you speak about Jesus. Much like the religious leaders that Matthew writes about, unbelievers still want him to be in the tomb. And so they pull the veil over their eyes so that they don't have to look at the empty grave that hauntingly stares back at them. They look away so they don't have to reconcile the evidence that so much points to a resurrected Jesus. But why all the fuss? Why all the fuss in developing this story? Why do the religious leaders go to such great lengths to go through all this trouble to keep Jesus in the tomb. Because if the tomb is empty, then I lose something. For those religious leaders, they would lose power and they would lose authority, but we lose something as well. If the tomb is empty, that means that Jesus has lordship, not just lordship over life, but lordship over death itself. And if Jesus has ultimate lordship, that means I don't. So we try desperately to just keep Jesus in the tomb. Because if Jesus remains dead, then I can go on living my life the way that I please. And I don't need to declare Jesus as the Lord of my life. But... If Jesus is alive, we are forced to make a decision. We are forced to consider the claims. Matthew writes about two groups of people, two reports about why the tomb is empty. And he lays them side by side and leaves the decision to you. Either Jesus is indeed risen or something has happened to the body and there's no real explanation for what happened to it. I urge you to consider these claims that Jesus is alive and longs for you to turn to him for the forgiveness of your rebellion towards him. He stands ready to embrace you and accept you and to forgive you for such rebellion, but you need to turn to him.
I urge you to consider this because if Jesus conquered death, then what he says and what he teaches is trustworthy and it's true. And he teaches that someday he's going to return once and for all. And on that day, there will be a separation. He will separate those who have followed him from those who haven't. And those that have followed him will enjoy his presence forever. And those who haven't followed him will be separated from him in conscious torment forever. Jesus is alive. This is not a hoax. This is not a fairy tale. He is victorious over death and self. And now he is desperately calling you to himself. He's calling you out of the darkness into the light. And so would you please let today be the day that you respond to his calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the fact that Jesus died. But not only that he died, but that he didn't stay dead. We praise you that Jesus overcame the world so that we too may overcome the world through his death and resurrection. I pray as we gaze into the empty tomb that it would bear testimony that we have life in Christ. That just as Christ overcame death, we too can overcome death through his death and resurrection. Amen.